Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week, a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My white bicycle. My white bicycle. That was the Nazareth song, My White Bicycle. But these days, you're lucky if you own a white bicycle, or for that matter, a bicycle of any color. A bicycling boom that emerged during the height of the pandemic is still going strong as people search for a socially distanced outlet for recreation and a safer mode of transportation. Most bike stores are besieged by the demand from would-be bike buyers for just about anything on two wheels. Mechanics, too, are overwhelmed by massive wait lists of customers' requests for a tune-up on their old bikes, some of which have been dragged out of the basement for the first time in years. Three local cycling experts give us the lowdown on how a 19th century wheeled invention is leaving a lot of modern-day Teslas in the dust. Later in the show, a new twist on your typical city guidebook. Three local history buffs team up to create a people's guide to greater Boston. There's a a tendency in the in the books that cover Boston to focus on the places that are very well known already, such as the Freedom Trail. It also leaves out the neighborhoods, right? Places outside the, the core, the center of the city of Boston. Combining tourist attractions with underrepresented history, these three co-authors present a greater Boston that's different from what you've read in a history book. But first, joining me remotely, Marty Miseradino, owner, manager, and buyer of FitWorks, a top-rated bicycle store and bike-fitting studio in Peabody, Massachusetts. Hi, Marty. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Also with me, Tom Rohde, marketing director for Parley Cycles, a bicycle manufacturer based in Beverly, Massachusetts, known for making the first custom carbon fiber bike frames. Hello, Tom. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having us. Great to have you as well. And Becca Wolfson, executive director of the Boston Cyclist Union. Welcome, Becca. Thanks, Callie. Happy to be here. And Becca, I want to start with you, because when the lockdown happened, when the governor said, OK, we're going to everybody's going to stay at home, bikes were not initially on the essential list of businesses. But yet Mass Bike, the Bicycle Coalition and uh, the Cyclist Union that you represent lobbied for it to be essential business and stay open. Uh, explain why. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is something that we saw across the nation and worked with organizations like ours um, in Philadelphia and D.C. that were doing similar lobbying. But basically, uh, you know, people's 
mobility was reduced dramatically. Um, there were fears about being able to use public transportation, especially at the start of the pandemic, and not being in an enclosed transit vehicle was uh, something that people were prioritizing for their um, public health and, and safety, and people wanted to ride bikes. And, you know, we said, if mechanic uh, auto shops are able to operate and, and keep fixing cars, then bike shops should be able to keep fixing bicycles, which are essential for people to get around. And especially when we're thinking about um, social inequality, it's a very affordable means of transportation as opposed to um, owning and affording a car. So we lobbied for that. Um, the state very quickly listened to our calls um, to constituents uh, and, and said, yes, bike shops are essential and they may stay open. And the city of Somerville was actually the first municipality to make that statement and, and Boston quickly followed suit as well. And we we're very happy that um, folks at the city and state level listened and, and made that distinction for us. Well, right after that happened, immediately people started looking at bikes um, with a different kind of interest. Uh, here's a voicemail from Landry's Bicycles in Boston, Massachusetts, and it really speaks to how the demand uh, hit the bike shops. Thanks for calling Landry's Bicycles in Boston. Due to increased demand for new bikes and repair services during COVID-19, we have been really busy and we are unable to take your call this time. There you go. Um, that is just one of the voicemails. I imagine something like that was uh, on your machine, Marty Miseradino, at Fitworks, as you were locked down and then opened up uh, later. Tell me about your experience. How long yeah. were you in shutdown, and when did you open up? Well, our situation is a little bit different. There's absolutely a bike boom going on, which is fantastic for cycling overall. Um, our shop is a is a bit different than your typical bike shop, uh, maybe a local bike shop or even a big shop like Landry's, and that we're a specialty shop and we're a very niche business. And then our focus is doing a bike fitting with person, uh, with a person one on one, and a comprehensive bike fitting process to not only optimize their position, but then use that information to uh, advise them on a new bike. And what happened very quickly for us is that. Nobody could come into the shop. Um, yes, we could do tune-ups, uh, which is literally less than 10% of our revenues. So 90% of our revenues was cut off because we could not have people into the shop. So while this massive bike boom was going on for family bikes and kids' bikes and hybrid bikes, none of which we sell, we were shut down for two months completely. So there is this massive boom going on, but our shop was left out of it. Um, we didn't get back into the shop uh, to do bicycle fittings until the last week in May. And so the bike boom already passed us by in that respect. And the, the, the thing for us is that in truth and reality, we are a higher price point bicycle shop in that we don't sell sub $1,000 bikes. And that's really where the bike boom was. So for us, it's been a little bit different. We're getting back on our feet. We're, we're busy as ever in terms of the backlog of services and bike fittings. Um, but right now, our focus is to get people back into the shop one-on-one -on -one for that bike fitting process that we're known for. And uh, we'll see how it goes. 
But Marty, uh, the word is that if uh, people are looking longingly at $2,000 bikes, too, <laughs> that it's not just, I mean, the, yes, there's a bike boom, obviously. That's where I'd be on the $300 and $400 level. But, but uh, you know, the, the intensity of interest in bikes now in a way that hasn't been there before has, has left some people looking at your inventory in a different way. Yes, it's a great point. What's exciting is that we're we're really looking forward to the future where all those people getting back into cycling, um, bringing those old bikes back out of the garage, as you mentioned, that they're going to fall back in love with the sport. And eventually we'll see them down the line for that bike fitting. Uh, but you're right. I mean, that price point in terms of availability is starting to creep up. Thankfully, those bikes are still available to, to our clients and, and we're starting to sell them again. But But you are right. Uh, Tom Rohde, you're the marketing director for Parley Cycles, and as we mentioned, uh, known for making the first custom carbon fiber bike frames. Um, how's business? Yeah, it's 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 really good, despite the fact, um, you know, whereas as a manufacturing company, you know, we were more restricted in, in terms of we were forced to close and, and really only able to fully reopen uh, on, on the May 19th date. So that's that's frustrating as as a manufacturer to have a lot of our customers who are retailers like Marty, you know, wanting to get product, especially in the spring, everyone gets anxious um, and and not being able to fulfill that. But I, I think we are we're able to kind of adjust to the new normal now in our facility with social distancing and and all the cleanliness protocol, and and I think everyone's happy to get back to work and to catch up with that demand. Um, but I, I think as a, as a company, we're really buoyed by the numbers, you know, talking kind of anecdotally to, to our retailers, um, what they're seeing, um, but also kind of, you know, some of the data that's starting to come out. I mean, I, I saw an interesting statistic this week that was published by People for Bikes, which is one of the largest advocacy groups in our industry. And they're saying that 9% of U.S. adults started or resumed riding after a long period of not riding. That's a huge number. And then they had a follow-on number, which was that 87% of those people that started riding again plan to continue riding even after um, all these restrictions are lifted. You know, so for us, big picture, um, this is great. More people riding um, at the end of the day is great for the industry, but it's, it's great for, and I'm sure Becca could speak to this a, a lot better than I could, but, you know, it's, it's, it's better for infrastructure it's better for communities, um, it's better for the environment. You know, there's just so much positive that comes out of people riding bikes. We're just excited about that. It's, it's, it's hard in this time with everything going on in this country uh, to find things to be excited about. But, you know, when you see groups of families out riding and kids riding bikes and, and you know, you can't help but have a smile when you, when you ride uh, and, it, and it's good for your health. So we're just happy about that. And the demand stuff will all get sorted out in the future. Yes, Becca, you are the person I want to talk to about this because um, the renewed interest, this is where you live. And I'm fascinated by all of the statistics that show that people who had bikes, you know, somewhere in the attic or the basement and hadn't looked at them and hadn't ridden them in 100 years are dragging them out now to try to get them repaired. Some because they can't buy a new one, <laughs> um, but others because let me go back to something familiar, but they haven't been on them. So tell me a story about what you're hearing from people who are rediscovering the bike. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as Tom just mentioned, what we're hearing from a lot of shops and just from people in the community is there are a lot more families biking with their children, whereas, you know, city streets, 
aren't always welcoming and inviting for our most vulnerable road users, for um, you know, seniors, for women, for children, for people of color, for people who have some type of more marginalized identity and um, you know, don't have that dominant comfort of existing and, and moving about our streets. And when there were fewer cars on the road, that did lead some people to say, you know, this feels a little bit safer. I'm, I'm going to try this. And so um, with, you know, fewer cars on the road, there were a lot more families and, and people willing to try biking for the first time. Um, the one challenge with that is that when there are fewer people driving, the ones who do drive often drive faster. Um, you have that feeling of an unimpeded space ahead of you. And so that meant, you know, we saw the need and, and cities saw the need to add separated infrastructure at a much higher pace. Um, and separated bike lanes are spaces where there is a much less likelihood that, you know, a car will be able to move into a bike lane because there's some type of physical separation and it just creates safety and comfort and, and inviting space. And so a lot of the cities, especially in the Metro Core and in Somerville, Cambridge, Boston and Brookline, we're looking at expediting safer separated lanes. And so in the city of Boston, uh, Mayor Walsh called that the Healthy Streets Initiative and identified a network of streets uh, that would be connected to each other. And that's, you know, one thing that's really important with separated infrastructure is that it connects to something. You don't want to create a bridge to nowhere. And so the mayor's transportation department did design this network of separated bike lanes that should be implemented next week. Um, oh, next week. Let's let's pause there. So that's that's big news. I, w- I want to highlight that. So next mm-hmm. week, say it again. <laughs> yeah, next week. It was supposed to happen last week, um, but due to protests and people taking to the streets, there was a pause on that to make the space and not impede those actions. So um, there, there's a very good chance that people biking downtown next week will see some separated bike lanes. And, you know, some people Hmm. never get to experience that. And once they do, they realize, wow, this is so much more comfortable than I could have imagined. Why don't we have these in every neighborhood? Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I was joined remotely by Marty Miseradino of FitWorks, Tom Rohde of Parley Cycles, and Becca Wolfson of the Boston Cyclist Union. We were discussing the bicycling boom that's emerged during the pandemic and is still going strong. Let's take a listen to Elijah Evans, executive director of Bikes Not Bombs in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. He's talking about the shop's reopening process. So we've been open since April 7th. Um, we were fortunate when the city and the state declared uh, bike shops as essential businesses, and we wanted to reopen immediately, just given the role that we play, particularly providing services to marginalized communities. On the service side, you can come through the front door, fill out a, a ticket that describes what your issues are, and then ring a bell, and a staff member will come out and help you. That's really helped uh, keep staff members safe. We're fortunate to have not had any knock-on-wood issues with COVID at the bike shop. And we've heard from customers directly that they feel safe as well. What helps us stand apart from other bike shops is that we collect a huge amount of donated bikes to use in our program. During the crisis, it's been an advantage, I think, for us to be able to have a mix of new bicycles to offer and also refurbished bicycles. That was Elijah Evans from Bikes Not Bombs in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. 
Uh, so, Marty Miseradino, here's something that I think is interesting that relates to you and um, the high-end product that, that you sell and that you work with customers to adjust a custom fit. Peloton sales surged 66%, yeah. 66% from a year ago to 524.6 million. They said last month that they had the largest class ever with more than 23,000 people streaming from home. If people know the Peloton bike, it's stationary. And then you have to pay after you buy the bike, you have to pay for the classes that come on the screen, which uh, the classes are yeah. streamed. Just a note, the spinning Bike, that's what we're most familiar with, is $2,245. The treadmill is $4,295. So my question to you, Marty, do you think because people couldn't get to you who are offering a bike that you'd ride outside, they went to the kind that they could bring inside as a standalone. They paid the same amount of money. Uh, you know, it's a great question. I think it's a combination. I think if you are somebody who enjoys indoor cycling and spinning classes, uh, now you can't go to the gym, you want to get your cycling fix, and that is certainly a way to do it. Uh, it's so convenient. Um, I don't necessarily see that people went indoors on a Peloton because they couldn't buy a bicycle to go outside. I think there is a separate population, but obviously some crossover. There certainly is a trend with the Peloton and some cycling apps where more and more people are coming back inside because of the traffic and the accidents and um, you know the nervousness of being on the roads with distractions. So I think there's a big combination of factors that, that is making Peloton explode, but it's related to a bicycle and I'm happy that it's related to a bicycle. As a former spinning instructor, I'm very mad that I didn't come <laughs> up with that idea, but that's here nor there. <laughs> Okay. Let me ask this, too, because um, I hadn't thought about this, but bikes, whether Pelotons inside or bikes outside, the kind you, you sell, Marty, this is a solo activity you can do for exercise. Now, you can be in a group, of course, sure. but um, this is a perfect storm because gyms were closed yes. um, and some continue to be closed. So talk to me about that and, and how you've seen that impact. Well, um, just that fact that gyms are closed and if somebody's primary focus was, was doing uh, cycling classes, spinning classes, um, that was completely gone. Um, so if they enjoyed that, if they felt healthier doing it, really Peloton or some form of, of cycling app with their existing bike really were the only options. So Perfect Storm is right, without a doubt. Gym's closed. I still want to spin. I don't have a bike outside. I'm not paying a membership. I'm buying a Peloton. So, so it all worked out. Mm. It all worked out. And some of those people are avid outdoor cyclists. Uh, and some of those people who are not outdoor cyclists who are riding the bikes may start to think, you know what? I, I enjoy it. Why don't I get a real bike and uh, get outside? And so we'll see that down the line. Absolutely. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I was joined remotely by Marty Miseradino, Tom Rohde, and Becca Wolfson. We're talking about the surprising supply and demand for bicycles during the pandemic. 
All right, Tom Rohde, let's talk about something that people have heard uh, in connection to food, and that's the supply chain. I mean, I never thought I'd be talking about supply chains as much as I have been since COVID-19 started, but this is at the heart of both the shortage of bikes, but something bigger. So the shutdown led to a you know spike in interest and then this massive shortage. So explain to us how bikes were really at the center of this supply chain issue. Sure. Well, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is bikes are really, truly a global product. And a bicycle that you'll walk into a store and see might have had 270 days of lead time to get the beginning of the process to the point that you're seeing it in a store. And components will come from all over the world. You know, the tires might be manufactured in Thailand. The shifters might be manufactured in Japan. Uh, the fork could be made in Taiwan. The frame could be made in China. And at some point, all that stuff's going to get aggregated and assembled and then transported to your retailer. And, you know, there's lots of steps along the way. And what's happened is, and I think everyone knows that, you know, Asia clearly was about, let's just say round numbers, three months ahead of us with, with the COVID outbreak. And so the supply chain on the manufacturing side in Asia was disrupted well in advance of when, you know, we all were disrupted here in terms of retail and wholesale. So that was going on, disrupting the supply chain. And then all of a sudden, you know, you also have huge disruptions with transportation. I mean, the number of flights, you know, was down, I think, at, at one point to 5% of typical demand. And so, you know, everyone knows underneath the passenger compartment is the cargo compartment. And a lot of cargo moves in passenger planes. And there just wasn't that transportation infrastructure. And, and let's face it also... I mean, there was a crisis to move PPE, you know, around the world globally in in this time frame. Personal protection equipment for nurses and Correct. doctors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. and 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 that takes priority uh, over over bicycle inner tubes or, or chains or things like that, that that are getting moved. I promise you. Um, so there's been this kind of ripple on effect, and then when there is a sense of increased demand, which I don't think anyone saw it coming. Uh, you know, I, I think we were all concerned talking to our retailers. Uh, in February and March, hey, what's what's going to happen? No one knew about who was going to be essential, who wasn't, what was the extent of the outbreak, you know, when when were we going to return to any sense of normalcy? So there was there was that whole time factor in this equation as well. Um, and certainly, no, I, I don't think of any manufacturer was ramping up their manufacturing in January, February, and and March. And so now it's just this this kind of hurry up. And again, with with lead times anywhere from 90 to 270 days, typically in the industry. You know, you can't just flip a switch and have a huge number of bikes in a store tomorrow. So, so the challenges have been significant. And then even talking to retailers, there's so much demand for labor of people bringing in bikes to, to be repaired. Um, and you mentioned earlier, you know, they've been dragged out of a basement or a shed or something. It competes with the labor to actually assemble the new bikes that they're trying to put it out for sale. Um, and, and, you know, with all the challenges everyone has with labor at the last mile of, of delivering that bike, um, that's been a challenge too. So, you know, there's been a series of challenges that have, I, I think, led to issues for um, retailers and, and manufacturers globally. I think there's just no way around it. It's going to take some time for that to recover. And, you know, certainly we're, we're, we're talking to retailers every day and, and just asking everyone to, to be patient. And, um, you know, people have been great through this whole process understanding that in the context of everything else that's going on with people's health and everything else, um, you know, having to wait two more weeks for your bike is a small problem to have. Yeah. 
Now, let me also just follow up with one thing, because I had not pondered this, but of course it makes sense, given what you just said about where the bikes come from, China and the tariffs. So there were tariffs on bikes, right? Um, Pretty high. And that kind of slowed the amount of bikes and parts coming this way as well, even before you get to COVID. When we start talking about uh, perfect storms of supply chain and then, you know, uh, you know, all of that. That's a great point, Callie. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that's really, there's been a kind of disarray in, in the supply chain uh, due to the Trump tariffs going back, uh, I'd say about 18 months. It's been a kind of an under the radar problem, but but people in the industry have definitely been dealing with it. It's very difficult to move a lot of that manufacturing around, um, you know, again, in terms of timing. Can't just if you have a, a, a tire factory in location A, you can't move a tire factory to location B overnight. It just right. doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, the, the supply chain has been challenged, I think, for both component manufacturers and bicycle manufacturers um, for, for a long time. So it probably wasn't good timing for, for, for this, mm. for this surge, if you will. Um, let's take a listen to Travis London. He's a sales and service manager at Bike Boom in Somerville. And he's uh, also speaking about the demand they've been experiencing so we have been sold out of bikes um, since like March with everything that's going on. And that's just been a big challenge for us. We've got to turn away a lot of business that uh, could have been possible without it. So, I mean, one thing that's for us is like we've had a huge influx of new customers getting bikes tuned up. And we've seen like a resurrection of old bikes, looking people looking for service on bikes that they've had either sitting around for a long time or weren't, they haven't been used in a long time, which has been great and i think we're going to see like a continued increase of of people cycling in the in the greater boston area so picking up from what uh, Tom just said and a little bit of what Travis said um Marty Misradino um you have to if you're a retailer sort of do whatever other retailers have to do kind of have an educated guess about how many bikes you're going to sell any season right so going into this season, you could not have predicted all of these various, you knew the tariff situation, right. but you didn't know anything else. So that was a problem. Yeah. So our, again, our shop is a little bit different in that because we're so one-on-one, we don't carry a, a large inventory. Um, most bicycle shops out there will create what are called preseason orders and, and use their crystal ball to figure out what's going to sell and whatnot. Nobody had a crystal ball in this situation. Um, so while the crystal ball was great that all the inventory is gone for us, um, we don't uh, we don't keep a lot of inventory. So it's easier for us to kind of roll with the punches and that if everything shut down and nobody could buy a bicycle, we wouldn't have been stuck. A lot of shops would potentially have gone out of business. Uh, and, and now the flip side of that is somebody comes in for a bike fitting, wants to order a bike. And now we're working on the, you know, the supply shortage if, if it's out there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that we're in a good spot speaking of fit work, um, mm-hmm. but still challenges out there. Yeah, yeah. So, Becca Wolfson, um, Boston has never been thought of as a bike-friendly town. Now, you just made an announcement about some changes that are going to happen um, as a result of this moment in time where we're looking at uh, lots of folks taking two bikes. A lot of families, the sales with uh, kid bikes have gone through the roof. They're talking about 
20% for adult leisure bikes, not the kind of specialized bikes that Marty sells. Um, and kids' bikes are up 56% because families want to have an activity. You know, we're not necessarily kind of friendly here in the greater Boston area, maybe other places in Massachusetts. But does this new demand now, other than what's happened in Boston already, put pressure uh, to make us a little bit more friendly overall, forever, not just in this moment? Absolutely. Uh, You know, again, what we've always benefited from in Boston is this concept of safety in numbers. You know, we've been lagging on infrastructure. We'd like to see the city put in safe bike lanes at a much faster pace than is happening in, in the region. Um, and this is a North American problem. You know, it's not just unique to here. And as more people are trying biking, we're hoping that they really see, wow, I feel the freedom. I feel this mobility. I have this sense that, you know, this is more affordable than owning a car. Um, and, and I feel safer again in these pandemic times than being in an enclosed transit vehicle. And, and I will say we're not trying to pull people off of transit. We're advocating for better frequency on, on transit and buses as well. But um, there are more people on the road that will have that safety in numbers, but will also have those numbers that demand safety. Um, so yes, so there is an imperative to provide safer spaces to protect people who are on bikes. Um, another thing too that I'll say is the city um, in recognizing that, you know, people need affordable ways to travel, has been working on making bike share more accessible, especially to essential workers. So when you say that, do you mean like the Blue Bike program when you say bike share? Exactly. Yes, okay, go ahead. Yep. So, mm-hmm. so Blue Bikes is a municipally owned program that has um, upright, sort of heavier bikes that are really great for urban travel. And you can pay by the trip. You can get a weekly pass, a monthly pass, an annual pass. And, and those passes are $100 per year. And the city has made those passes free for 90 days for essential workers. So people who work in hospitals and in the transportation industry that was just also expanded to people who work at grocery stores and pharmacies and in Main Street's districts, which is a a really great way to provide affordable, accessible travel, especially right now. Um, Also, the Boston Cyclist Union, uh, my organization, just launched a program where we're offering $5 annual Blue Bikes passes. Again, that's reduced from $100 um, in a partnership with the Wagner Foundation and people unlimited incomes can get those uh, by getting a code from us. So if anybody's listening and, and knows anyone who might be interested in, in looking for an affordable way to get around, you know, while new bikes aren't available, bike share is a great way to also try biking in the city. And Becca, I had heard that the blue bike program has exploded as well during this time. Um, what are you hearing? Yeah, in you know the first maybe eight weeks of the pandemic, when there really was more of a lockdown, there was less mobility. But now that mobility is increasing. Um, every time I'm outside, I see lots and lots of people on blue bikes. So I you know haven't taken a good dive into those numbers yet, but I can imagine they're only going to keep increasing. And I I don't want to end this conversation without your talking about bike to market, because you're really trying to reach out to marginalized communities that haven't had bikes accessible to them. And you go to farmers markets and do repairs of kind of a pop up repair, as both Tom and Marty have have said that that repair piece has gotten huge now um, with people with old bikes. 
Exactly. Yeah. So bike to market is a program that we run at farmers markets in neighborhoods without bike shops um, and in under resourced lower income communities. So we're in East Boston, which, you know, if, if you have a flat tire or your brakes need fixing, there's no bike shop in East Boston. And it's really challenging for people to get their bikes repaired. So the farmers market in East Boston every Wednesday is really popular for us. We bring mechanics and we have a, a pop-up bike station and, and we fix bikes. Um, the repair is free. We just charge as little as we can for the parts. And if someone can't pay, we just do the work anyways. Um, we're, so we're at East Boston, we're um, in Northern Dorchester. We partner with the Food Project uh, at the Dudley Town Common Market on Thursdays. We're at Roxbury Crossing on Fridays um, and in Mattapan on Saturdays. And, and our goal is to get people on bikes to fix at as low a cost as we can, especially when people's wallets are being pinched more, biking is more affordable, um, and, and people are bringing those bikes out of the basement. The new phraseology, some of you may have heard this, is that buying a bike these days is like buying toilet paper <laughs> uh, because uh, yeah. it's uh, there is a demand. Um, I'm going to do a quick round robin with all of you, and I'd like you to each speak to the excitement of being or the good feeling of being on a bike. Just something short, starting with you, Tom Rohde. <laughs> Well, for us, um, you know, be, being on a bike is, is really all about freedom in every context. It's the closest thing that a human can feel to flying and, and, and moving efficiently uh, under your own power. So for us, it's, it's just it's a great activity and it's we feel fortunate we've turned it into our livelihoods. All right, Marty Miseradino. Riding a bike for me personally gives me the opportunity to either train for something and, and, and reach a goal or just to go out and enjoy some surroundings that you don't get to see when you're in a car. Uh, it's, it's really interesting where I can ride the same roads over and over again. And every time on a, I'm on a nice bike ride, I see something new. And uh, for me, that's pretty exciting. Becca. Yeah, to me, biking has always been about freedom and access and also now more than ever connection. You know, I will stay in my bubble in my house for days on end and then I'll decide, oh, geez, I really need to get out and ride my bike and I'll come into more, you know, distant contact with people than I have in days. I'll smile and nod and lock eyes, you know, with folks I pass on the sidewalk and just feel that I'm part of a world with other humans again and connected. Well, that's a perfect place to stop. I thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much for having us. Marty Miseradino is the owner, manager, and buyer of Fitworks, a top-rated bicycle store and bike-fitting studio in Peabody, Massachusetts. Tom Rohde is the marketing director for Parley Cycles, a bicycle manufacturer based in Beverly, Massachusetts, known for making the first custom carbon fiber bike frames. Becca Wolfson is the executive director of the Boston Cyclist Union. Coming up, think you know all about Boston? Think again. Three local co-authors comb through centuries of greater Boston's history to discover untold stories from underrepresented communities. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.